Hello, my name is Jack McDonald, and this is This Is My Favourite Thing, the podcast where we talk about people's favourite things, usually about art, but it might be about flowers. It's not. I'm here today with someone who is listed on my MyGov secret <laughs> questions as my best friend in high school. So if anyone needs to hack into my account to access some kind of government support... Yeah, if you could also tell me the name of your first pet or your mother's maiden name, that'd be really great. I'm here with James Perkins. Hi. Could you tell us a little bit about what your favourite thing is, what, um, you, what you feel and what you thought? It's a book of poetry called The Taste of River Water by Kate Kennedy. Do you own it? No. <laughs> I borrowed it from the library. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure we were going to... I thought we were going to maybe pretend that I was holding a paper copy. No, it's copy. an interrogation. I was thinking of flipping some pages <laughs> as I read from my phone You're screen good. of the photos that I took from the library book. I'm going to purchase it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I might... We I, could have I an, would on, we could have an on-air order. You could get it from... Oh, uh, yeah. That's not a bad idea. I mean, not very interesting as far as podcasts go. But the tapping... Just listening to someone... The tapping might be endearing. Book depository order or something. Yeah. Okay. You want to come up? He's talking to me. The Taste of River Water, mm-hmm. Book of Beautiful Poetry. I'm not usually one to love poetry. Um, I often find it kind of overly flowery and, well, wanky, really. Sure. Um, well, it was recommended by the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast with Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb, which we're both a fan of. So I, that's where I first came across it, and I thought, oh, that sounds good. I think Lee actually read out one of the poems, so mm. I'm kind of just... We're piggybacking. Yeah, we're just nicking that is, is one of the ones today one of the ones that she read? I think she read out Joy Flight. Well, the joke's on her because we're going to hear from the lady herself, Kate Kennedy, oh. reading Joy Flight. There you go. So oh, it's a one-up, chat excellent. 11. And then what happened? Well, I read it. <laughs> Surprise. Um, most library books that I borrow, I don't read, actually, but uh, this one I did. Um, Topic for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just... Uh, it's so beautifully written in a way that is not... Like, it doesn't feel like poetry in some sense, so it doesn't feel, you know, overly annoying, I guess. Um, what is it about other types of poetry that you think is so aggravating, so personally aggravating? Well, often it feels like people are trying so hard or trying too hard for it to be poetry. And I think when it seems like someone is trying to make something profound, it kind of ruins any actual profundity well, they're very well crafted, for one thing, but mm. also there's something about them. And frankly, I don't, I don't know what it is, and I haven't thought too deeply about it. So maybe you can help me figure it out. We're going to nut it out. <laughs> but uh, there's something about them that touches a nerve every time, and it's not like a a sad nerve so much. Mm-hmm. It's just like every time I read them, I get a bit emotional, and I don't really know why. Mm. I think it's just that there's something so true fundamentally true about them and when those sorts of things are pointed out it just feels like i don't know it just resonates with you in such a basic way Mm. but i really i i'm not sure why they or the ones that i really like make me feel emotions yeah do you think it's that like australian family perspective in, in some way, or you don't think that's relevant? There is some... I think there's some fairly personal poems mm-hmm. towards the end that are sad from her perspective. Right. Um, but I think it's more... Like, the ones that I really love are the ones that... The ones that you can sort of... Well, it's not about seeing yourself in, but it's seeing, like, an aspect of 
I don't know. I'm really, I really don't know. <laughs> it seems to, well, I think reading interviews that she's given, she acknowledges the importance of nature and I guess her own personal relationship with nature as an angle that I guess influences her poetry. And also she lives on a farm in Victoria, I think. So it's like, maybe that's part of where it comes in. It's kind of more to the elements rather than the, than a sociological perspective. I don't know. In an article that she wrote for The Age called Let the Outside Seep In, this is in response to the trying to be profound, I think. Mm. She says, I find I'm digging carefully, wondering what else might be buried there. I wonder if, like those intriguing blackened bricks, these objects seem rich with a kind of charged, poignant symbolism, precisely because their real histories have been lost. They seem, in fact, meaningless without some narrative to attach to them, and the urge to fill that negative space for a storyteller feels overwhelming. I think I was reading that and I was just thinking about the way that she kind of doesn't try to attach that kind of meaning to it. She kind of just presents the situation of the poem as it is and doesn't really try and put two and two together, I guess, just leaves it. I guess so. I think all of her things seem to be, they pull out meaning where you might not have noticed it and mm. i think she's very good at paying attention to seemingly mundane things and pointing out that pointing out some something that we all recognize once she's pointed it out but something you might not see without her guidance mm. i guess yeah all of the poems are very like they're just about real life and that's what i really like about them is that they're these sort of images these sketches of real life scenes that are not special, but she shows you the special in the everyday, I guess. Do you think it's also because she is an Australian author, do you think it's the Australian flavour as well that you appreciate? Maybe. Certainly some of them are are quite, well, obviously Australian. I don't know. I mean, you know, the Australian aspects of them are usually sort of country-based, things that I am not, you know, I'm not a country person exactly. So it's not, I don't know if it's, that I'm relating exactly to the Australianness of it, like because it's not my kind of Australianness anyway. Yeah, but I think certainly some of the poems are like that, but others are much more timeless because they're about us. And there's one that I don't know if we'll talk about today, mm. but the one that I do have photos of <laughs> that you that you <laughs> one day, did one day purchase. I promise, Kate Kennedy, don't. Uh, <laughs> it really does go to that, um, you know, finding interesting meaning in everyday things that you would just walk past and not notice yeah and i don't know it sort of points out that you maybe should pay attention to the small things because it's very easy to go through well your life not really paying attention to it sounds like i'm just saying oh you gotta stop and smell the roses man but uh, i think that's kind of what her poetry is also please don't leave that in it's quite appropriate, I suppose, for the times now. I think in the past few episodes of this, the current political or social climate has been acknowledged and it's kind of a way of escaping the present and reality. And I think there is something to like the minutiae of these poems that does give a kind of escape maybe or a bit of perspective because, I mean, you're obviously barraged by terrible news stories every day and you have this really large global mental scope now i think so to have something so small is kind of charming and endearing yeah i guess so maybe let's just listen to her read joy flight sure 
My father's stories must be provoked from him by some landslide of sorrow, a lost city's foundations revealed by shifting earth. Only after the death of two brothers does he relate some childhood moment of a Sunday after mass when a tiger moth touched down on a patch of ground, offering joy flights. I see them, those three blonde boys taut with longing, that silver machine, the sky. My father remembers the sum of money required for the three boys to go up and his own father's face closed and abashed after he asked the pilot. He turned away and my father steeled himself the walk home to lunch. Yet somehow his father was carrying the money and somehow he decided they flew. Disaster could have struck and sent my grandmother mad with grief. My grandfather would have been condemned to watch that from the ground forever. But nothing went wrong. They flew and returned safely to the earth, transformed. An awestruck moment in a poor childhood. Desire made real. A stern father hiding his smile on the run home. Everyone who witnessed that event is dead now. My father handed me the story, a small recovered legacy, glinting and bright with disuse. And now I carry those three buffeted, grinning children in their Sunday clothes, hardly able to believe their luck, astonished by joy and flight. I hold this and yearn to write fiction in the face of these deaths and losses, in the face of all that is forgotten and revealed by the stark shift of pain and surprise. I want to carry this talisman, carved like a rune, for my father, for my uncles, for my grandfather, and for that pilot, for that pure, torn open moment where they each slipped free of the earth. Fiction, which is the ribbon pulled from a trembling mouth, which tells its truth with such defiance that everything forgotten will blaze, every joy burnished, every recollection of unexpected flight shared and passed from hand to cupped hand, carried warm next to the skin. Recited for courage. Admittedly, that bit at the end is bordering on the. Uh, no, never mind. She, she, no. You're gonna, are you about to publicly slander Kate Kennedy? No, as being I, wanky? I, I would not dare. It's it's just it's not the it's, it's the not... image it's the image and the sketch of it that I like rather than the interpretation yeah. afterwards. I still like. I think it's well done but in terms of you know what i opened with about mm. it not being uh like putting like putting that two and two together maybe yeah perspective yeah i guess so but um i mean it's still it's still beautifully written it's interesting that both of the poems you pick kind of revolve around family in that way photographs and memory other than just how nicely it's written mm. most people at least if they've had a, a, a semi-nice childhood have some experience of some event or object maybe that they really wanted but were you know knew that they probably weren't going to get because it was not something that was affordable or you know affordable for them Mm. um and then just the utter delight and surprise of parents coming through having having yeah providing that and also that little perspective of how pleased the sort of stern father is about being able to do that yeah for his kids and so that's 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 one thing but i think more potent in some ways is the just the uh, the fact that her father 
didn't mention that. It wasn't like some story that he was really willing to give. It only came out. Yeah, so she says, I mean, those opening lines about her father's stories must be provoked from him by some landslide of sorrow. Um, Only after the death of two brothers does he relate some childhood moment. Mm. And it's that idea, and she, you know, revisits that in her end after, after the description ends. She goes back to sort of say that, you know, those, those sorts of memories that can be beautiful, like written a poem about it, it's a, such a lovely moment, can just be lost yeah. through... They only exist in, in memory, and there's something sad about that. I think the tone of most of her poems is a little bit... It's sort of bittersweet. Yeah. Um, so this little snippet is from Kate Kennedy, discusses the craft of writing fiction with Andrew McRae... And he asks, what is a story? Wow. Asking the big questions. Some people look for the wow factor. I look for the ow factor. I find myself thinking if a story makes me go ouch, it must be because it's got some truth to it. And truth, or those things that are universal to all of us, I think, are loss and pain. We all collude in them, in hiding. If a story somehow manages to address those things, to create that visceral response in me as a reader... It stops me in my tracks and makes me think, yes, that's my story too. So in a way, stories are the universal sore spots, the tender spots. And it doesn't mean to say that humour doesn't work as well. Some stories are beautifully ironic and beautifully subversive and witty, but we don't laugh and cry at things that are funny and sad. I think we laugh and cry at things that are true. What's Kate Kennedy's truth? What do you think the truth of Joy Flight is? Well, I mean, I think that quote is... Who knew she would put her finger on it better than I do? (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I think it's true that those... The bits that are really impacting are the ones that you recognise in in yourself. And Mm -hmm. I guess that is all that true can mean in this context, at least. Yeah, I think it's also... Without delving too deeply into epistemology. Yeah. In recognising it in others, I think as well, there's a bit of a sting. That kind of stern father, the moment where he cracks and kind of, like, tears up in some situation, or, I mean, if it happens personally in some... in watching a, a movie or some event to happen, it's quite a... I mean... For when it's happened with my family, it's been quite a, like, almost seismic event where it's just like, there's this weird gravitas to a moment, and I think it's something that you don't really forget. There is something about the the role of being a man or a father that is strength and and not vulnerability, Um, and so crying... You know, you you always hear people say, "Oh, it's a sign of strength." It's like, well, it, it's vulnerability. That doesn't mean it's weakness. Cry. Yeah, it, you're saying that it's it's the most primal way that we can show hmm. sadness, really. And I think that men are, well, in particular, are conditioned not to show that. I'm not sure it's always a, a, a bad thing. Maybe you know, a, 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 an insistence that you know, men don't show emotion or anything is probably not healthy. Yeah. (laughs) The importance of a powerful sort of figure, you know, regardless of gender, is someone that you look to and and go, wow, that's strength or, you know, they can take what the world has to dish out. 
and then I think that goes to why you're saying oh, it's such a seismic event when the figure that is you know strong throughout those things shows that you know it's not they're not impervious to it as well and why you don't forget it when if any parent cries unless they're you know crying all the time sure most most parents are quite you know don't cry in front of their children very often mm-hmm. um, and it's usually quite a momentous thing for a kid to see that because it's like opening up to the world and like oh <laughs> it's yeah. this is hard for for even the strongest that I know of. Do you think that's why she highlights it in Joy Flight, that he is kind of moved to, like, hide his smile, I suppose, and hide this such a rare moment of emotion? Well, I don't... I mean, I don't know the specifics of her relationship with her father or yeah. what her father is like. I do think maybe that if, if there are aspects, you know, of tough masculinity that are good, withholding of, you know, personal moments is probably not one of those things. Mm. Um, the point isn't why as far as i can tell of the poem it's just that those those memories can be forgotten and will be you know even if even if they do are shared Hmm. but also i think with by withholding something well not withholding but not actively sharing yeah i mean it makes it much more powerful when it is shared you know that thought of withholding weakness Hmm. you know sharing childhood moments when you're most vulnerable and when you were not the powerful you know, patriarchal figure that you, well, may or may not be now. Yeah. It's quite, it, well, it's it's just opening up another source of vulnerability. So, wait, so your favourite thing, you think, is the Taste of River Water, the collection? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's some of the poems in there more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's probably four main ones in there that I think are... Bangers. Yes. Absolute yeah. bangers, as Kate Kennedy would put it. Uh, yes, I believe she would. I mm. think she actually says that in this next part. Wonderful. This one is called 8 by 10 Colour Enlargements, $16.50. Let me lay it out for you. A rural photography competition in a local town hall, and the woman next to me, sitting with her husband and two children, had travelled three hours to be there. Her kids were quiet, with the soft, cowed politeness of remote life. A farm up in the lonely, dry stretch of the western districts, her husband's boots smelling of polish, and he, preoccupied as the judge, made her speech. Thinking, no doubt, of the work waiting for him back at home, and the cost of filling out the car to return. He looked at his hands on his knees, and then over to the photos on the wall. The dead tree silhouette and sunset photos. The cobweb misted with dew at dawn photos, as his wife drank it in all hungrily. And then stood to be awarded second prize. I want you to imagine the brief, economical smile they exchanged when she sat down again, holding her certificate. Her landscape photo on display, carefully mounted on card, enlarged at the chemist's in town. Budgeted for, cautiously admired. The judge announced the winning photo. A massive sunset shot, the colours juiced with Photoshop. Someone else stood for that applause, and that check. Then the judge added, in passing, that there'd been another photo she'd admired, which would have been a winner, except its theme was not images of rural life, as specified in the competition rules. And she held up a picture of the woman's two children gazing transfixed out of a window, the light pouring in, their faces upturned with wonder, and the woman stood again and politely collected this photograph, tucked it with a certificate on her lap, saying nothing. Later, as her husband checked his watch and spoke softly to his kids, a hand on his daughter's fair head, I told her how much I loved that picture, and what a wonderful photographer I thought she was. And she smiled and looked at her photo. You know, she said, it didn't break the rules. 
This was the first moment my children ever saw rain. They left then, back to their car, to the long drive home, to the big, bone-dry expanse of land beyond salvaging, with a second prize certificate and so few words between them. No speaking up, no protest or complaint, no claim of being wronged or misrepresented. But I think, even now, about how the light streamed onto her children's rapt faces, the tired love in her husband's hand, and her, running to find her camera and frame it, the smell of the rain marked dust, rare, momentary joy. They left, and all this passed into silence, unremarked and unacknowledged. That's why I'm telling you now. That ending line is just, oh, gets me every time. You introduced me to these, um, like a couple of years ago, I think. But the thing that really stood out to me this time is that real subtlety of emotion. And I think the way that she very deliberately subdues all the kind of emotional elements of it is, I think, really unique for poetry and just for art in general. I feel like a lot of TV shows and movies and things really try to go for, like, big emotions and big melodramatic moments and things where it all kind of comes together and connects, but that moment where the husband and wife just look at each other and smile quietly is just so realistic. And I think it's kind of that thing I was saying earlier about, like, like having this bigger perspective of things um, how we have a, a larger global perspective, but something like this draws you down to just a conversation or a moment between two people. It's just quite a, like, tender and sensitive thing. Mm. Maybe it's not even that it's an emotion that's highlighted, it's just a action. She kind of just presents things as they are, almost from an objective perspective where it's just what you see of someone else it's like you see two people smiling you you can obviously you obviously know what what's communicated there it just seems like something that she's just very adept at i just love we were we were all told in english classes in high school that classic oh you gotta show don't tell Mm -hmm. and i think she does that very well I, i just the economy of words for conveying things is quite incredible i'm not someone who's very practiced in, you know, critiquing literature, really. But she's very good at portraying very subtle emotions with not very many words and not, you know, just, you know, the laying of a, his hand on, on her, his wife's lap or, you know, her children being, you know, having that sort of country politeness. Of <laughs> mm. Do you think that's the thing that keeps you coming back and makes you want to say it's a favourite thing, that emotional texture? Yeah, I mean, it's it's recognisable emotional texture, really. There's something mm. there's something about those that you you feel on such a like a deep level. Maybe I really should have done a bit more preparation for this because I I haven't thought about it enough to give a good interpretation of what I what I think. But I think maybe that's what's kind of powerful about these poems they affect you on a level that's slightly deeper than like cognitive i mean to quote sorry, someone they just hit you right in the feels yeah. they bypass your like thinking about them in some sense you just you feel them rather than interpret the words and but i think yeah. that that's the thing as well you say that you're like underprepared for this it's like what exactly would you put together to articulate what you think about it if it is kind of running on that 
subconscious level where it's it's a feeling rather than something that can be written down and articulated maybe that's you can always articulate things in in a way that at least helps you make it more clear what what can't be articulated another quote yes kate kennedy talk to us impart your wisdom from that same interview with andrew mccray he asks do you have any favorite writing tools the other thing is just keeping your life quiet and not overstimulated so you get better at paying attention to small things. If you have a huge rush of white noise coming all the time, and it can be anything from your music playing to the white noise of your own inner critic, it's actually taking away your attention from those small moments. You need a quiet life to have the silence to be able to process the stuff you've already taken in. We often think we need to research more, but we don't. <laughs> it's almost like this is planned. I didn't even know this is so so wonderful. Thank you, Kate Kennedy, wherever you are. Because practically everything we need to know is actually already there. It's the blank page that's the scary thing. Starting is the hard part. So I'd suggest trying to have a bit more quiet space, absorb less, be less stimulated by things, switch off the distractions. What do you think about what she's saying there about the blank page being the scary thing and starting is the hardest hard part? I guess what, what what do you think that she really nails here that you would have some level of experience like trying to grapple with just like authoring oh, well, something that's, like that? That's everything. Anyone who's ever tried to write something knows that that's true. Even if it's, you know, what I spend most of my time now doing, you know, more scientific stuff, it's still... It's way harder to start than to, you know, edit something, which mm. is why usually, you know, techniques to actually get things done, writing tasks done, are, you know, to write badly first and then make it better. But, you know, it's because it's very easy to write something badly, particularly if you're happy or well, not happy, but you're willing to write it badly first. Mm. And then usually what happens after that is that you look back at it and go, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. Or, you know, worst case, oh, well... I can well, fix that. Awful. I can I can edit that bit because that's really bad. Mm. Um, so I think that's true of any, well, probably any process that we do, either creatively or, frankly, not. Uh, one thing I will say about, like, that quote in particular mm. um, and what I think is very... You can see it in her poems. Well, the idea of, you know, you don't need to go expand out and search for things that are interesting to write about. There's, well, it also goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about that there is interesting things in it, literally everywhere if you just pay attention to it. You know, it doesn't have to be some deeply poetic idea for there to be beautiful poetry in it. Yeah. They're certainly very um, based in, in, in memory. And mm. yeah, I think that is a, quite a strong theme throughout, more than just the ones that we will talk about now. But um, As in through the collection? Yeah, absolutely. It's... I mean, in some ways it's hard to be poetic about something that's not about memory in some sense, but there's also a lot of the themes seem to be about the simple fact that things end and things fade away and are mm. forgotten and finding a sort of beauty in that, which is not expressed anywhere quite as nicely mm. as in the next poem that I'll read, um, which is called Temporality. I'll ask you to assemble here next to the step where so many feet have stood shifting, waiting for a welcome, that they have worn a cupped impression in the brick. There are no headphones or podcast, no virtual tour, nothing is animatronic, and there are not even signs. 
In this museum, objects must be noticed in order to be named. Let me invite you to put your sceptical fingers here, into a wall cracked open like a seam, in that arid subsiding spot with its bite of jagged mortar exposed. Feel the evidence, deliberate as a glacier, of movement, of the power of slow ruin. And in the shed, on this salvaged beam taken from the old factory, you can read the faded names of workers from half a century ago, still scrawled provisionally in pencil. Joe, Wally, Gavin, Terry. This four-inch nail banged in beside them to hold invoices that they always meant to replace with a decent hook or clip. See how it's still holding fast, long after they have gone. See how they were wrong about what was temporary. These are the exhibits worth naming. The triumph of the nondescript, the steady rise and rise of the inevitable. Seeing them here, barely visible, demanding nothing, might remind you of your own belongings, the last things you expected to have bundled under your arm, the shirts, washed colourless, and the unfinished books that you know would have done you good. One hand clutching the dented pie dish, scored like an endless, unsolved equation. The hat with its forgotten tide marks of sweat. Everything it's too late to grieve for that you had thought you had discarded. Everything you used, unthinkingly, until it was burnished into invisibility. These remnants, adrift from their stories, will end up here too. Whatever lies we tell ourselves, these are the things that will outlive us. That brick will see us out. That forgotten nail, driven in with four heedless glinting hammer blows back in 1957, will remain immovable in that piece of hardwood when you and I are dust. And the ghosts who've stopped in this doorway and rested one hand tiredly against the wall to take off their boots before coming inside? Just here, their fingers grazing this worn, unsanctified spot. Their voices are as distant, as impossible as sirens. Well, this is where I leave you, to make your way through the rooms, threading back and back into the hushed corners, your lips moving with recognition until there are no rooms, until you are standing empty-handed in the sunlight. You ripper. <laughs> I think it's a good summary of the some of the main sort of themes in the other poems, yeah. in some sense. Maybe it's just the thing that you don't expect is going to last. Well, there's something that... I guess there's a, there's a history behind everything, which mm. sounds obvious when you say it. I think particularly in the modern world where we have, you know, machined things that just look like factory output, and maybe they are largely. Mm. But, you know, even for most most things that you sort of think of as being a factory output have had someone, you know... Put the screws in, or you know, like solder up the the motherboard of your computer. I don't know. I mean, the thing that springs to my mind is something like Instagram, for example, where there's just this constant churning of images and videos and things, and it's just this kind of endless timeline. It just almost seems kind of funny how completely detached from reality it almost is you you you're able to pass through whatever that moment is and they just capture one single glimpse of it and we maybe don't give it a second thought but i think it's an interesting invitation that kate kennedy has in something like temporality mm. well you can tell i guess from the name that it's an exploration of the idea that well those things are more permanent than we are maybe even they will one day be gone but we uh well, so fleeting, I guess. I think the the point of it, in some sense, is to point out that the human... Oh, I can't say the human condition. You can say it. Um, you, <laughs> you can drop one H, so <laughs> one hot chocolate. We live most of our lives trying to... Maybe not trying to, but 
sort of putting in the back of our minds the idea that we're not going to be around forever. I think one of the the things about her poems that is so powerful is that she seems to be sort of constantly pointing out that to us. Mm-hmm. And we all know that, but there's something about it sort of being made abundantly clear with lines like, you know, that, you know, casually banged in nail will be around for way longer than you will. Um, mm-hmm. That feels quite... Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a quick way to the truth. <laughs> yeah. And her bit at the end about writing fiction as a way of telling the truth mm-hmm. is like the, fi- the fiction is a, is a truth that lasts longer yeah. than any of us. Another Kate Kennedy wow. clip. This one's, an absolute, so stuff. this one's an absolute bumper edition of stuff, stuff that has happened. So this is from Jennifer Byrne presents Words Aloud. Okay. Oh, I think we're definitely hardwired. I totally agree. And I think it's because in lots of ways we had all those traditions for many, many, many years before we actually even developed any written language at all. So in terms of us evolving, that's where I think the hardwiring lies, is remembering things. We remember them because they're rhythmic, because they rhyme, because they became songs that we remembered and told our children. And then over generations, those things became the stories that kind of gave the sort of coherence and meaning to our lives. Mm. Because she has written short stories before, but I think the oral tradition and memory and the way that stories are kind of passed down generally is through verbal communication, I guess, when it's like a family story. It's not like you write that down to tell your child or whatever. That's just something that's passed along. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that the more you write stuff down, the less you actually remember because well it's quite useful to write things down in that you don't have to remember anymore Mm. but i think this in sort of anthropological studies of you know tribes that don't have a written communication form or at least don't use it that often Mm. that have absolutely insane memories basically because they have to you know they got to remember all of the things that are poisonous or whatever they can't just refer to a book or you know wikipedia or something there's something a bit different about listening to something said aloud than than reading it mm-hmm. you know like i mean we've only really been reading for in terms of on the scale of human evolution we haven't been reading for very long for most of society you know most people have been illiterate and so you know verbal communication is the only was the only thing that there was so we're kind of new at, at reading and i don't know if it's obvious that reading is the same as listening to something i mean when you read it's kind of like this a voice in your head that's saying it, but I'm not sure if it... There's, there's a difference between someone saying something and reading something, and it can be much more powerful to have it said. Yeah. Probably I, only if it's said well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if my uh, poetry reading is doing that justice, but uh, it's rare to find poetry that is done in a way that is true and not done up a little bit for... I'm not going to say that it's pretentiousness that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm sure that most poets, most good poets are not pretentious or at least not trying to be mm-hmm. and that are genuinely just looking for truth and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like so much of poetry is, I don't know, perhaps I'm not able to comment properly because I don't know that much. I haven't read very much poetry, but a lot of the stuff that I do read it just feels like they're trying too hard. There's, there's something about this that is... I think it's possibly it is helped by the down-to-earth subject matter, but it's also her execution that it's so 
efficient and subdued, but still crafted so beautifully. Mm. Like it's not like you know, it's not like it's completely, you know, technical language or anything. It's still it's still beautifully written in this, you know, yeah. something that can be if it's really well done, it can be enjoyable in and of itself, like regardless of the subject matter to to a certain extent. I don't know. It's a fine line. It's a bit like, you know, just aesthetic taste. Yeah. Um, it's it's very it's hard, it's very hard, and that's why not everyone can do it, and it's not everywhere. But it's very hard to find the line between, you know, something that's trying too hard to be beautiful, which is then, you kind of, you, if you can identify that something is working too hard to be, to meet your approval, then you, there's something about us that we go, oh, but this don't is like that. absolutely not getting the tip. Yeah, yeah, it's like a me. sort of spiteful thing. But if you pair it back too far, perhaps well, it's if, just. If you pair it back too far, it's boring. It's an IKEA manual. It's you know, like it's. I don't know. There's just there's a there's a beautiful line that Kate Kennedy seems to tread between like beautiful expression and metaphor and simplicity. I mean, that's taste. Yeah. You know, taste is always because if you put too much effort into making something beautiful, it can tip towards sort of gaudy. And similarly, if you just paint all your walls white, it's like, well, do you have a personality? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you would recommend that? someone read this especially someone who maybe doesn't particularly care for poetry well i think it's good for someone that doesn't care for poetry because it it's not you know all these metaphors that are just you go, oh please you know <laughs> and th- you know there's there's obviously some metaphors in there that, that's a lot of a lot of the stuff but it's not it's not presented in a way that makes you think that they're trying to show off i guess i don't know i just i think they're you know a, a lovely understated beauty and something fundamentally true in all of them that really just gets you. If someone's listening that doesn't like poetry and they didn't enjoy those, the ones that we've read here, mm. feel free not to read it. <laughs> uh, we can't help you. You're, you're a lost cause. But still buy the book and support, even if you aren't going to read it, and then just donate it to a Vinnie's or something. Or, or to me. I don't have a copy yet, so... Uh... James Perkins' address <laughs> is fill in the blank. It's talking to you. Uh, well, well, yeah, fundamentally. I think that's for poetry to be good. It has to have an emotional impact. And for me, this does. I, pretty much every time I read any of the... Well, not any of the poems in there, but certainly any of the ones that we've read here, there's something there that just makes me feel something. <laughs> yeah, like a great song or a great album, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just that you're... Even if, like in this case, where I don't necessarily have a great understanding of why it makes me feel something. You know, I can point to the vague direction, but I don't know why. It'd be a bit psychopathic, I think, if you could Could psychoanalyze everything. (laughs) This made me feel sad. But yeah, I guess summing up, it's because I find them deeply emotionally affecting. And I find that they're written in a beautiful way that is not overstated and not understated. It's just, it's a beautiful beautifully crafted writing and it means something and i don't think you can ask for much more than that in poetry or in anything i feel like we should dedicate this episode to our year seven english teacher andrew Donaldson, <laughs> if you're listening this is what year seven english can do for you <laughs> i don't know if that's a uh, compliment or not we'll see if uh... <laughs> that's a compliment it's in, i mean we just divided five hours of <laughs> our time to recording this Oh, I see. This is for... Oh, this is just your promo. This is the promo. This is for the end of the episode. We could sing it. I'd like to... Oh, okay. No, no. Three, two... Here we go. (laughs) If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. 
You can follow us on Instagram at T-I-M-F-T underscore podcast. Or Timfit, if you prefer. Uh, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever. Wherever. 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 Is there a... I don't know what... I think there's meant to be an extra E there. I don't think the E from ever can count to where, the where as well. Well, I mean, it hasn't told me that it's wrong. Yeah, I don't actually know. I've never... Well, and there's a newsletter on the website at jackmac.xyz slash timft. Or timfit. As I prefer, but I thought I'd learn from the previous. Sure. Uh, releasing with each episode every second Wednesday. Until and I am I, subscribed to that. Until I die. Oh, well. Thank you, James Perkins. Thanks, Jack. Thank it's you, Kate Kennedy. Thank you very much, Thank Kate. you, Andrea Donaldson. I will buy your book. And thank you, Donna. Maybe, well, maybe I'll get it for you as a gift or something. No, I think I should, I think I should purchase it. I think you should, too. <laughs> All right. Until next time.